July 1934, on the banks of the Rio Grande. Not within the memory of the oldest inhabitant had such intolerable heat been known. Day after day, a fiery disk moved across the sky. From the sandy, sun-seared soil, dust clouds arose and drifted listlessly on a shriveling, desert-born breeze. Babies gasped for breath under the grueling ordeal of the hot winds. Beasts and man alike suffered the pangs of hunger, the agonies of thirst. And everywhere there were gruesome signs of the sun god's wrath. And in the towns and villages along the border, food preservation became a problem of increasing gravity. In the intense heat, milk soured, meat spoiled, and vegetables withered in just a few hours. Little children suffered. The problem of safeguarding food became a question of life and death. Then, in the midst of the great heat wave, to protect the health of her two children, Mrs. Will Thompson bought a frigid air with super freezer. And through all the welter of heat and dryness, Frigidaire proved her wisdom and foresight. We're going back to the good old days. The accelerating rate of men's progress. For this is the age of industrial chemistry. As we have progressed as a people, we have taken liberally of our Earth's resources. Scientists have discovered a trend. Each spring, over Antarctica, a hole in the ozone develops. Do you think these chlorofluorocarbons are causing this depletion? They said, oh, it has to be wrong. It has to be wrong. We are passing on extremely grave problems for our children when the time to solve the problems, if they can be solved at all, is now. What you've just heard was a refrigerator ad from 1935. It might have been a tad dramatic, but the 1934 heat wave was indeed a record-breaking one, and not just in the U.S. A contributor to that year's bulletin of the American Meteorological Society wrote, Never before had there been so little rain over so wide a territory throughout the growing season. Like the Depression, the drought made itself felt as an international disaster. What was even more dramatic, though, was the change brought upon people's lives by the refrigerator. You might not have thought about it much, but life was very different before the fridge became a common appliance in every household. The appearance of refrigerators improved the quality of food. It meant people didn't have to go to the market as often and could store leftovers. This, in turn, increased food safety and improved people's health. Food prices decreased, and food became more readily available. All of this was brought about by the refrigerator. Even early civilizations knew how important it was to preserve food. The earliest records of refrigeration technology date back to 4,000 years ago. But the real breakthrough in the history of refrigeration came only in the 19th century when the ice trade began. Back then, Ice was harvested from ponds and lakes, stored in ice houses, and transported to cities. This had been done for centuries, but at the time, it was limited to the local area. In 1806, however, a man named Frederick Tudor from Boston began shipping ice to the Caribbean. That marked the official start of the frozen water industry. 
In the following decades, the ice trade would expand across the globe, with shipments reaching England, India, South America, China, and Australia. Brands of ice became well-known in some parts of the world, such as Wenham Lake Ice from America, which became quite popular in London. Cocktail recipes from the period even included the brand of ice you should use, so if you wanted to prepare Mrs. Beaton's original pineapple julep, you ought to have your Wenham Lake Ice chipped and broken into small pieces. Norway and the U.S. became the two centers of this industry. By the end of the century, at its peak, the ice trade employed almost 100,000 people in the U.S., while Norway exported a million tons of ice each year. The industry became such a crucial part of people's life that occasions of scarcity of commercial ice were called ice famine. One of the reasons ice became such a hot commodity was the icebox, a device popularized in the second half of the 19th century and the early 20th century. You may have heard people in some parts of the world use this word when talking about a modern fridge, but in fact, what we will refer to as the icebox is its predecessor. An icebox was a cabinet where people stored food. A large block of ice would be placed in a tray near the top of the box so the cold air circulates down around the storage compartments where the food is. If they wanted to keep their food fresh, icebox owners had to replenish the melted ice regularly, usually by buying ice from their local iceman. Yeah, you heard me correctly. Besides a milkman and a postman, some cities and towns used to have a local iceman who would sell and deliver ice. People kept their iceboxes even when the first mechanical refrigerators appeared in the 1920s. The reason for that might also have been that the first fridges were quite dangerous. They used toxic and flammable refrigerants, such as ammonia. Just to illustrate how toxic these refrigerants could be, here's an excerpt from a 1936 New York Times news item. Two adults and ten children were overcome by ammonia fumes on the street at the intersection of Richardson Street and Meeker Avenue, Brooklyn, yesterday at 1.45 p.m., when a refrigerating unit of an old refrigerator was cracked while the machine was being dismantled. The victims were treated by an ambulance surgeon and returned to their homes. Jamie Lincoln Kitman is an award-winning investigative journalist who wrote extensively about the early days of the industry. The... Um refrigerator, as we know it was in the 1920s, was relatively rare, expensive appliance. Only rich people really had them. Other people, you had ice boxes. They would take ice and, and you know, keep replacing it um, to keep their food uh, from spoiling. The uh, problem with those refrigerants were that were they were highly flammable. A rich person on Fifth Avenue would go out to a party and come home and their mansion would have burned down. So there was uh, quite a bit of agitation for something that was safer. And of course, um, General Motors, which had a refrigeration company in those days of uh, explosive growth called Frigidaire, uh, wanted something that they could sell to the mass market. And who had the task of developing this new household device? None other than an inventor we've already gotten to know quite well on this podcast. Thomas Midgley, Jr. Even though the first chlorofluorocarbon had been synthesized some 40 years earlier, Midgley improved the process and developed his first CFC, 
dichlorodifluoromethane by combining the flammable hydrocarbon with two toxic gases, chlorine and fluorine. The result was a chemically inert compound that can be used as a refrigerant, which they named Freon. How does it work? Well, to make something cold, the main step is to remove heat. Freon has a very low boiling point, which means that under low pressure, it turns from liquid to gas very quickly. This rapid evaporation absorbs heat quickly, and Freon becomes very cold very fast. When this reaction happens in the refrigerator coils, it makes them cold enough to refrigerate food. The gas is then compressed and condensed into a liquid. This process is then repeated over and over again. Freon didn't seem to be poisonous, and it was safer than the refrigerants used before it. Yet again, Midgley had a winner. The modern refrigerator was born. Frigidaire followed you through supermarkets, then designed this Frigidaire Imperial Cold Pantry to store food the way you buy it and use it. In the bottom, a separate food freezer for 66 pounds of frozen food. At the top, a nine cubic foot refrigerator with cyclomatic defrosting, a picture window hydrator that swings down. Ask your Frigidaire dealer for the Imperial Cold Pantry in Stratford Yellow, Sherwood Green, or Snowy White. Thanks to Freon, the refrigerator was finally ready to replace the icebox. At the start of the 1930s, just 8% of U.S. households owned an electric refrigerator. By the end of the decade, the share of households with a fridge reached 44%. But the refrigerator had its golden age after World War II. Just a few years after the war, 85% of the U.S. population had a fridge. In Europe, things moved a bit slower. In the 1930s, people still relied on communal cooling houses to store food, and the war didn't improve the situation. In 1954, more than 90% of Germans didn't have a fridge. At the same time, only 4% of Italian households owned a refrigerator. But things changed rapidly after that. Only 10 years later, Italy was the third most prolific exporter of refrigerators in the world, after the US and Japan. The share of households that owned a fridge jumped to 32%, and just a decade later, 86% of all Italian households had one. Mid-century, the Frigidaire refrigerator was so well-known that many Americans called any refrigerator a Frigidaire, regardless of its brand. In France, Canada, and some other French-speaking countries or areas, the word Frigidaire is often in use as a synonym today. The same is the case for countries of former Yugoslavia, where the name is still in use in its transcribed form as Frigidaire. No need for the bride to feel tragic. The rest is push-button magic. So whether you bake or broil or stew, the Frigidaire kitchen does it all for you. Don't have to be chained to the stove all day. Just set the timer and you're on your way. By the 1970s, the refrigerator became the common household appliance we know today. But before fridges went global, how did Midgley and General Motors prove that these new gases were safe? Well, they didn't. They simply used the playbook they developed to launch leaded gasoline. Just like leaded gasoline, Freon was promoted heavily, the miracle chemical, they called it. Just as he did a few years earlier, Midgley went out to sell it to the public. And just as in the case of leaded gasoline, the one who conducted the study to prove the product was safe 
was Dr. Robert Kehoe. The problem with that was that all of the study was funded by the industries that, that created the product. And the federal government, which was essentially, you know, invited to do its own studies, did not. And it rather it let the so-called regulated industry uh, do its own science. And that's where you have Dr. Kehoe, who just has, you know, uh, shoddy report after report for the next 40 or 50 years, um, where he is essentially being paid to send up very misleading reports. Dr. Robert Kehoe, do you remember his name from the last episode? He's the one who went to South America to prove people had naturally high lead levels. Then he found those already exposed to lead to prove his point. That's the guy. Kehoe was hired in the early days of Ethyl Corporation. His first job was to study health issues related to the production of tetraethyl lead. By now, you can imagine what he said. He found no evidence for the existence of any danger. In 1925, Kehoe would go on to testify during the conference on the future of leaded gasoline. Since leaded gasoline didn't exist up until just a few years earlier, there were no proper studies done on its effect on human health, even though we had centuries worth of information proving lead was toxic. The only source of information was Kehoe himself, and he was financed by the lead industry. Instead of advocating that the product was safe, Kehoe took another route. Knowing that there were no other studies, he advised to discontinue the sale of leaded gasoline, but only if it can be shown that it was dangerous. He reasoned that a product that economically beneficial should not be discarded simply on the basis of opinion. Sounds reasonable, right? Jamie Kitman doesn't think so. It takes advantage of sort of the endless malleability and debatability of science. You know, you can say, I mean, the, the scientific method at its best, people put hypotheses out and they're challenged. People can always review things and say, well, your data was bad. You didn't correct for this. You, you might have um, thought about this and, uh, or maybe that was true, but it's not. And, and so they would just, they were constantly, you know, just, um, you know, it's like almost like a guerrilla tactic where you just go, well, here's this report. And then it takes years for everybody to come to terms with the fact that it was, it was nonsense. Kehoe put the burden of proof on the public. Instead of the company having to make sure its product was safe, the public had to prove it was dangerous. This paradigm, which assumes a lack of risk unless proven otherwise, has come to be known as the Kehoe rule. It was a win-win situation for Ethyl. If the leaded gasoline turned out to be safe, they could still sell it. If not, it would take forever to prove so. And in the meantime, Kehoe could produce other studies proving his position. In case somebody came along with a study deeming it bad, Kehoe would simply call for more data and challenge the results. Another point, research requires funding, and unlike many scientists out there, Kehoe had the money. He would go on to hold the post of the company's chief medical consultant until his retirement in 1958. It would take decades to disprove his pseudoscience. People trace it back to the tobacco industry in the 1950s when they started basically denying what they knew to be true and coming up with junk science to uh, suggest that it wasn't that wasn't the reason. 
Because all you have to do is throw negative conclusion in some. Actually, I would suggest that it goes back to the gasoline business in the 1920s. All of that brings us up to uh, global warming, climate change, um, and the fact that the same exact company um, used the same techniques it used in the 1920s to sell in lead gasoline to deny climate change, which their own scientists we now know were speaking about in the 1970s. And after allowing them, you know, some free reign for a few years, basically fired them all or muzzled them. And this whole thing, they spent the next 50 years with creating junk science, challenging um, other people's science that was detrimental to their position. You heard it. These companies didn't just invent numbers. They had competent scientists do proper studies for them. Then they would simply bury the results if they didn't fit their narrative. Kitman says this started back in the 1920s and continues today. The companies that convinced people leaded gasoline wasn't harming people and the environment are fueling climate change denial today. And over years, their methods just got more sophisticated. In the meantime, having been deemed safe by Kehoe, CFCs were discovered to have many other uses. First, they made refrigerators safe to use, which made food safer and cheaper. All kinds of products became available as food could safely travel across the country. Cross-country travel became more comfortable for passengers as well. CFCs were used in air conditioning for cars. And most importantly, they were used in aerosol sprays and the making of plastic foams. And while they were making our lives easier, they were destroying the environment. All of this on the premise that they were completely safe. But in the 1960s, the scientific community started pushing back. Listen to how they fought back next time on Ozone. Subscribe to Climate Solutions so you don't miss the next chapters of Ozone, the story of how we dealt with the biggest environmental disaster humanity encountered until climate change. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your podcasts. This was Climate Solutions from the European Investment Bank.